want to welcome you again to Door Creek Church. Great to be back. Great to be together wherever you're watching or listening from. Welcome again. It was just a few days ago, right? A couple weeks ago, June 24th, Surfside, Florida. We woke up to hear the uh, just shocking news that this big condo building, part of it had just collapsed. And up to maybe 160 people caught in the rubble. As uh, we've been following the story this week, they've moved into this recovery of bodies. There's no hope of finding anyone surviving this whole thing. And we wonder why. We want to know what happened. And so they're, they're investigators on the scene that that will be their job. In the same way that we want to know what, what's gone, been going on with this pandemic. Four million people have died over the last 17 months. And we want to know what happened. Was it the fish market the virus started? Was it in the lab? That, that's just how our minds work. Whether it's a big pandemic or something hard in our life. Like, what happened here? How did I lose my job? What happened here? What's, what's going on with our, our marriage? What's going on with my relationship with my son or my daughter? What, what's going on with this loved one that, that just, just suddenly died? We're trying to make sense of the world that we're in and, and the circumstances that seem to be all around us. That, that's just us in this world trying to make sense of the world. And so as we wrestle with things like that and how to make sense of a disaster, how to think about it, how to respond, uh, it's really good to catch up with the book of Joel. And I'm titling this message, When Disaster Strikes. Because Joel gives us a perspective that we so often miss. On the one hand, we couldn't have it. But on the other hand, we never look for it. And that is, what is God's perspective? What, what does God know about what's hard in your life right now? What is he trying to do through that? And what are you missing in the midst of this? As God pursues you with his grace and love. Well, we're continuing week two now in our series, Watchdogs. The minor prophets, minus Jonah, who we've covered a few times in the years past. But we'll tackle 11 of the 12. So in the Hebrew Bible, this would be one scroll. You know, if Jesus was reading from the minor prophets, he would have been given one scroll, all 12 of them, in what was called the Book of Twelve. The Book of Twelve. These prophets these watchdogs, these spokesmen for God. A prophet is one who speaks for God. They're God's mouthpiece. How do they speak for God? In speaking for God, they tell us about God. God is using the prophet to help us understand who he is. And then he's using the prophet so that the prophet can tell us what God wants us to know about where we are in life and where we are in this world and what's going on and how to get back on the right track. Spokesmen for God. When it comes to Joel, we don't know a lot about him. We know his name means God is God. We know that he's the son of Bethuel. Uh, we don't know exactly when he ministered, but we have a clue of where he ministered. He was in Jerusalem, in Judah, in the southern kingdom, and many take it that he was writing after the exile. So this would be in, in the latter part of 500s BC, like in 539 when they started coming back under Cyrus the Persian leader right he's maybe writing them but we don't know because we don't have clues there's no mention of a king but it seems to me that he's writing after 
the exile. So he knows all about biblical history. We don't have time to review it today, but he's well aware. He's not actually going to list like a prosecuting attorney would the charges against God's people because that's one of the things the watchdog does is, hey, 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 hey. I've been watching on God's behalf and here's where you're breaking the covenant. Remember the agreement that you're going to be God's people? You're falling short of that and I'm going to point it out. He, he, he knows all that and he assumes his audience knows all that as they have read the prophets and read through the book of the 12. So when we come to Joel, I'd like to work through the book in a simple fashion. As we seek to understand God's message for his people then and now, I'd like to look at three key phrases or three key verses. The first is, wake up you drunkards, the day of the Lord is coming. That's right, welcome to Door Creek Church. And you heard the pastor say, wake up you drunkards. Yeah, that's verse five. And we're gonna get to that. And uh, verse 15, the day of the Lord, which is a theme that we'll run into about five times in, in Joel's prophecy, but many times um, in the other prophets. Rend your heart and not your garments, 213. And number three, I will repay the years the locusts have eaten, chapter 225. So before we get into it, let me just correct something that I think happens too often in our lives when we're reading this portion of scripture. Number one, a lot of us scratch our heads, go, I don't get it, I'll never get it. It's mystery to me. I'm looking for the gospels in the book of Matthew. So we just chase through. Others are like, oh, this is so exciting because this is always talking about the future. Well, it does somewhat talk about the future, but that's not the purpose. Let me just say this about the purpose of the prophets and prophecy. Prophecy's purpose is not to reveal the future, although sometimes it does. It is intended to reveal God and his plan and how to align our lives to it. So spend more time looking at the message that God is bringing to his people than how in the world is it being fulfilled today? And uh, how is it fulfilled in prophetic history? You got it? All right. So before I read to you Joel chapter one and give you the historical setting, I want you to hear these words that describe something similar, I believe, that goes back 100 years. The year is 1915, March 19th. Isan Turjman, an Ottoman soldier stationed in Jerusalem, wrote this in his diary. The locust invasion started seven days ago and covered the sky. Today, it took the locust clouds two hours to pass over the city. Can you imagine that? You think about a flock of birds, how quickly they can fly over Dane County. Two hours to get from one end to the other. God protect us from the three plagues, war, locusts, and disease, for they are spreading through the country, he wrote. Other eyewitnesses told of a thick darkness spreading over the country for days. Fields covered by the locusts as far as the eye could reach, said a cable from the American Council General in Jerusalem as late as November, some eight months later. In December, John Whiting, Deputy American Council for Jerusalem published a report in the National Geographic magazine titled Jerusalem's Locust Plague. Evoking the Bible, Whiting described the loud noise produced by the flapping of the locust wings as resembling the sound of chariots of horses running into battle. The massive year-long locust plague was truly catastrophic. 
The winter wheat and barley crops were greatly diminished. The summer crops, the fruits and vegetables were completely devoured, as was the autumn, olive harvest. The land was laid waste and trees stripped bare. In Turgeman's words, nothing was spared. Tens of thousands of Jews and Arabs in Palestine died. Now, this stuff is as real as last year. I just saw a Forbes magazine, June of last year, talking about the locusts in Africa and in India. This is the stuff that happens. And we read about it in Joel chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving from the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. So wake up, wake up. In chapters one and chapters two, we have these parallel poems that have this connection between the day of the Lord, this day of reckoning, if you will, this day of judgment, similar to days in the past where like the eighth plague, God brought judgment against the Egyptians so that God's people would be delivered judgment and restoration and deliverance all working together in God's purposes it's it's a wake-up call here's something that's happened I'm going to help you understand what's going on he says in chapter one this past event this horrific event that has brought great devastation to you and the wildfires that he'll talk about in verses 19 and 20 he says I want you to know about that and I want you to know that there's something even worse going to happen to you if you don't, if you don't get right with me. And so in chapter two, he's pointing to this future disaster and the trumpet call goes out and it's this warning, the enemy's at the gate, whether it's a real army or again, an army that is a metaphor for another kind of plague. He says, wake up. Because something worse is headed your way and I want you to be prepared for it. And so what's clear and surprising here is that God in chapter two is the one who's gonna bring the devastation. He's gonna be the one who's leading the army. Look at verse 11 
of chapter 2. The Lord thunders. He roars at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? And so we need to understand that God is telling us through the book of Joel that he's more than a God of love. That his love and his justice cannot be separated. They go together. His justice is an expression of his love. And his love is expressed as he writes all wrong. Love and justice. And so he's bringing this present disaster in a gracious way to keep them from the eternal disaster of facing God's judgment unprepared. And so there's a lesson in this wake-up call. And it's this. Wake up, hear the warning, heed the warning. Don't be in denial. Don't act like a drunk right now. Get sobered up. Come to terms with this fact that you have broken covenant relationship with God. That your sin and your rebellion against God is bringing disaster to your life and this world. And, and wake up to the fact that God is not indifferent. The opposite of love is not hatred. It's indifference and apathy. And God is neither. He is jealous for his people and he is faithful to his promise. And so he is committed to make right all that is ruining our lives in this world. And he'll right all wrongs to do that, to make all things right. But he's not only just, he's merciful in giving this warning. And he's merciful in helping him understand how to escape this dreadful day of God's judgment. Because that's the question at this point in verse 11. Who can escape this terrible, dreadful, great day of the Lord? Who can endure it? And in the hinge part of the book, 2, 12 through 17, the answer is those who turn back to God. So we go on and we move from that first point in chapters 1 through 2, 11 to now rend your heart and not your garments. The second key phrase, 2.12 through 17. Pick it up in 2.12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God. Here's why. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room, the bride or chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep before, between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So, rend your heart, not your garments. So we're not used to this idea of tearing your clothing. But something that would happen 
in biblical times would be that people would tear their clothing as an expression of their sorrow over their sin or perhaps over the sin of others. So one of the places we see it in the life of Christ when he is claiming to be God and they think he's blasphemous and so they tear their clothes. He says, look, 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 look. I don't want you to play at this. This is for real. This is not about an external change of clothing. This is not about tearing your clothes. This is about having your heart ravaged and changed before me. This is returning to me with all of your heart, reminding us of the great commandment. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Bring your mind, bring your volition, bring your emotion, bring your strength, all that you are, your heart, internal. And it works out externally. And so this concept of returning is the New Testament language of repentance. And if you will, it's doing a 180. It's going from here and then it's going, whoa, this is not good. It's not good for me. It's not good for others. I've got a change of mind that's leading to a change of direction. The word repentance in the New Testament means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. I'm moving towards God, this one who's pursuing me with his goodness and grace and his mercy. This one who's providing me a way of escape from the judgment. I'm moving towards him. And it involves not only this change of mind, but it involves this confession where we confess our sins. And there is power in doing that. And not only that, but we're contrite. There, There is an emotional engagement over our sin, not the consequences, but over our sin. Over the consequences, that's called worldly sorrow in the New Testament. And that leads to death. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. And the fourth thing that it does and involves is there's this commitment to obey. He says, I want you to turn back to me. And it's not a 360 where you fake it and you go, I'm still going. No, it's a 180. It's back to God with your whole heart. He says how to go back with your whole heart. And then he says with God's people. And that's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Of course we weren't. Because we're Americans and we're rugged individualists and we work these things out on our own. And to be sure, we stand individually before God. But as we receive his grace and mercy, he incorporates us and adopts us as the New Testament language into his family. And he tells us to gather with God's people. It's beautiful. And in person. But he doesn't just say how to return he says why and this is this beautiful revelation about God yes he is the God who will not leave the guilty unpunished right visiting the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me right but he's also the one who is look again at verse 13 who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity and that's why he says return because that's who I am and you can't separate those two because his justice is inseparable from his mercy, grace, and love. And he's quoting Exodus 34 here, verse six, the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. So don't miss it. And don't play at repentance. That's, that's the lesson here. Look, you and I play at diets. Yeah, we do. 
Like, I was doing really good until I got to that Haagen-Dazs pint of butter pecan, and man, I just emptied it. We, we play at our relationships. We play at our marriage. Well, I, I remember your birthday. I, I got the anniversary, you know, some flowers, went out for dinner. And the rest of the year, we're playing at it. We're not investing in it. We're not committed to it. We play at our studies sometimes. Blow off the whole semester, and then we go crazy for the exam. We play at it. We play at our work. Like, you know, when the boss is looking, we're, we're all in. When, when not, we're goofing off. He says, do not play at this thing called repentance. Don't pretend to be turning back. You're either turning back to me with your whole heart or you're not. It's not about this external. It's not about saying, oh God, I'm gonna start going to church now. Oh God, I'm gonna start giving you a little bit more money now. Or I'm gonna start giving money now. Oh God, I'm gonna start serving here now. He says, you start with your heart because you know who I am. Don't play at it. The psalmist says, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Psalm 51, verse six. The third phrase, I will repay the years the locusts have eaten. All right, so let's just kind of follow the logic here. Right? Wake up, you drunkards. The day of the Lord is coming. That's a fearful, dreadful day. Who can endure it? Oh, those who turn to the Lord. What does it mean to turn to the Lord? With your whole heart, with God's people. Well, how does God respond to those who turn. What are the benefits? Well, how is the gospel better than you ever imagined? He mentions three things here in chapter two, verse 18, all the way through 21, under this banner verse of, I will repay the years the locusts have eaten. Three things God's salvation brings. The first is deliverance and victory over our enemies. He mentions that in verse 20 and verse 32 of chapter two. And deliverance from the final judgment in, chapters th in chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. So he gives deliverance over our enemies. And that includes sin and death and the enemy of our souls. Victory. When we turn to God, he brings victory. Do you feel like you've been losing and losing and losing? God brings victory and victory and victory. How does he do that? Through Christ. How does he do that? Through faith in Christ. How does he do that? Because he is the one who gives us his presence. Chapter 2, 28 talks about God saying, I'm, there's going to be a day where I'm going to pour out my spirit on men and women and children and they're going to prophesy and they're going to dream dreams and they're going to do great things and it's going to be for everybody. God's spirit was given in the Old Testament. That's nothing new, but everybody didn't get it. He was a person for a particular time, for a particular calling. But now he says, you're not going to have to go to someone to mediate the, my presence. You're not going to have to go to the temple so the priest can tell you what I say. You can, you can have a direct access to me. And with that, through my spirit, power, my power. And he's building off of the prophecy of the new covenant that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. The prophet said, God speaking through the prophet, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. 
I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. That'll be your desire. And to be careful to keep my laws, a new heart, new desires, new strength to keep on walking with God, turning away, turning to, turning away, trusting him. What does God bring? Deliverance, his presence, his power. What does he bring? Restoration. Those who turn to God with torn hearts, not torn clothing, are forgiven and experience restoration. The land is restored, 222 through 26. And ultimately the new heaven on earth that he speaks about in chapter 3, 17 through 21, looking forward to the new heaven on earth where God's people are safe and it's a picture of prosperity and abundance and all things are right and God's blessing, this river of life flowing from the presence of God. There is restoration not only to their land, but to their time and their past. And and that's the wow verse here of the restoring the years, the locusts of Eden, 225. Literally, I will repay it's this legal term. I'm going to make it right. Pay it back. And we're going, are you kidding me? That the gospel, the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, is he doesn't just forgive the past. He repays us for what all we squandered in the past, for all that the locusts have eaten and devoured. And we sit here, some of us right now, going, oh, my word, I came to faith too late and I wasted my life. Oh, my word, I've been following Jesus, I said, since I was knee-high to a hymn book, but I've lost my way. And we're filled with regrets, filled with regrets. And he says, in heaven, and in part until we get there, we can live with no regrets about our past. And he pays back in his goodness. He doesn't just pay for the junk in our life that busted it all up. He brings back the goodness that we missed when we went our own way. Praise God. And he restores relationships. Verse 27 We'll know him and he will be with us. Plural, not just with each of us, but with us together. We'll know him. How do we know that? Because his spirit will be in us. So, do you hear the warning here? Are you going to pull a Galveston on me this week? What am I talking about? Galveston Hurricane, September 8th, 1900. The deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. That day came with plenty of warning. From the ships coming in, talking about the raging storm out at the sea, to the newspapers sounding the warning that this storm is coming and yet one out of six people in Galveston died. And the reason being it was so high, the death rate, the the historians tell us is because they were proud and they didn't think it could happen and they were complacent and they ignored the warning. In 1900, Galveston was stuck on itself, boasting Texas first post office, telephones, medical college. There was more money in Galveston 
than Newport, Rhode Island. Downtown was packed with ornate office buildings, many on the Strand, known then as the Wall Street of the Southwest. Galveston was the hub of a booming cotton export trade. City streets led to imposing Greek revival, Romanesque and Italianate mansions. Streetcars ran along the beach. Boathouses jutted out like sentinels in the Gulf. There was this great sense of hubris that America and Galveston, Galveston in particular, was going places, could do no wrong, said Eric Larson, author of Isaac Storm. Why Isaac Storm? Isaac was the U.S. Weather Bureau climatologist, Isaac Klein, who dismissed as absurd the notion that a hurricane could devastate Galveston. His stance discouraged the town from building a seawall. God comes to us through the prophet Joel, and he says, wake up. Wake up. You're drowsy. Sober up. The day of the Lord is coming. The hard things that you're in, I, I want to use that to draw you to myself. The hard things that are going on is to prepare you so that you can face that ultimate hard thing. The ultimate day of the Lord. Wake up. Rend your heart. Don't play at it. And trust my promise that I'll make all things new and even repay the years that the locusts have eaten. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says here in the scriptures, everyone saved for on Mount Zion, the very place where Jesus hung on a cross and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance as the Lord had said. And this God who said it, he did it when he sent his son who experienced the darkness of the sun when he took on the full wrath of God so we could experience the eternal love of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we pray that by your spirit, you would wake us up, shake us from our posture of pride or complacency, thinking that we're all good, all good with you, we pray that you'd have our whole heart, that you do a work in our heart. Even as the psalmist prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore a right spirit within us. May we be a people, even as we gather, who come together in this sacred assembly even today to confess our sin, to cry out to you for mercy, that we might receive your promise all your promises that are true and yes and fulfilled in Jesus, our Savior and in whose name we pray. Amen.